Good morning, everyone. Sometimes, sometimes when you hear a Bible reading, and it's a good Bible reading, and it's a good passage, you get up and you think, do I need to say anything? That was really good. Um, and then you have to preach after Paul, you've just heard Paul's sermon, and you think, well, how can I outdo Paul? Um, but here I am. Uh, my name's Hal Ryan, if you haven't met me, and uh, it's my privilege to preach on Acts chapter 17 today. And we're thinking about, we're thinking about Christianity, we're thinking about the gospel and how you share the gospel. We're thinking about the message. Um, and Christianity really is about a message, isn't it? It's, not, it's about a message. It's about a word. It's about a good word. And it's not just a word that hangs in isolation. Rather, it's a word that we hear. Right? We receive the word. We hear the word. We believe the word. And it's a message that, that we want to see go out to everyone we know. Right? It's a message, it's a good news, it's so good that we want everyone to hear it. So I want to start this sermon with an exercise. And uh, Sorry, this is the interactive part of the sermon. Um, turn to the person next to you, or the person in front of you or behind you. Uh, and I, what I want you to try to do, uh, hopefully it should be easy, is explain the gospel in one sentence. Uh, you can use less if you like, but one sentence. And I don't mean one of those 18th century sentences with like 30 dependent clauses. Like, you know, a sentence. Um, now, if you're with us and you're not yet a Christian, that's okay. Like, uh, I know this exercise might be a little bit confronting, but I'm sure you've had at least one person try to tell you about Jesus sometime in your life. Think about what they said to you. Think about what they thought was really important. See if you can summarize that into a sentence. Um, don't worry, I won't be marking results at the end of the sermon. All right, so I'll give you a couple of minutes. Talk to the person next to you. How would you summarize the gospel in a sentence? Now, this is wonderful, and you've already just told each other the gospel, so I, my job is done. I don't need to <laughs> preach anymore. Uh, does anyone, does any, is anyone brave enough to share what they or the person next to them might have said? John 3.16. <laughs> Which, for those of us who aren't, who aren't super familiar with the Bible, is? For God so loved the world that gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Brilliant. Very good. Um, anyone else? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, Hans doesn't have an answer for this. I'm a bit worried. <laughs> the word of God that they preach to us. The, the word of God, the message to us who believe. Profound. <laughs> oh, it's good. Um, anyone else? I heard a lot of people talking, so you definitely had things to say. God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. 
If we believe in him, we can be saved. That's good. It sounded a bit like two sentences, but I'll let it pass. <laughs> I'll grant you the comma in the middle. <laughs> Anything else? God created us. It's a very good place to start, isn't it? Creation. Now, what I want to do is I want to compare our answers to, with the message that Paul proclaims in Athens. Um, and so, if technology works, which it doesn't always, am I pressing hard enough? Oop, did I go too far? What's happening there? Ben, can you hit the button for me, please? Okay, cool. Um, sorry, technical difficulties. So, um, what happened in Athens, just a quick summary, like Paul's talking to everyone and, it, and people are trying to summarize what he's saying and verse 18 it says, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Plural. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Like, you know, Paul only believes in one God. He, um, he seems to be talking about foreign gods and they said this because Paul was preaching about the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. Isn't that remarkable? I think it's one of the most remarkable verses in this chapter, and it's a very interesting chapter. Um, I don't know about you, but certainly for me, the resurrection would not be the first thing I mentioned if I'm trying to share the gospel about Jesus, right? Like in the sentences you thought of, did anyone mention the resurrection? There's a mention of eternal life. Mike Sickney's hand up at the back. He's been to Bible college. Um, but isn't that remarkable, right? So I don't know about you, for me, the resurrection would not be the first thing I mentioned about Jesus, right? I'd say, like, Jesus died to save you. I'd say, Jesus saved you from your sins. Jesus loves you. But I wouldn't say Jesus rose from the dead. And so when um, Paul, I'm pretty certain, is probably a smarter Christian than I am, he probably knows more about the gospel, so I want to pay attention to what he's going to say when he says the resurrection. And what am I missing? What do I leave out? What do, what do I leave out when I talk about Jesus? So I think there's a great deal we can learn from Paul in this sermon. And so Acts, Acts 17. Uh, next slide. Okay, cool. Um, Acts 17. This is one of Paul's longest sermons, and it's one of his most evangelistic sermons. And I think it's important for us, uh, because of who he says it to, not to mention how he says it and what he says. So remember the context. Uh, we've been on a long journey through Acts. So Paul became a Christian back in Acts chapter 9. Uh, and then Acts chapter 10, Peter gets this... And, and, and in Acts chapter 9, there's a little sneak peek. God says, I've got a plan for Paul. He's going to be my witness to the Gentiles, the, the people who aren't Jewish. Then in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets a special revelation from God about the Gentiles. And Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, becomes a Christian. And then between Acts chapter 11 and all the way to Acts chapter 17, you see Paul going on his missionary journeys and he's um, preaching the gospel. And though his, um, his pattern is always to go to the synagogues, he preaches to the Jews first, inevitably the Gentiles are becoming Christians too. It's so much so that the Gentiles, so many Gentiles become Christians that the church in Jerusalem has a big conference about it in Acts chapter 15 and has to come up with a policy for Gentile believers. And so now we get to Acts chapter 17, like Gentiles, 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 we get to Acts chapter 17, and this is Athens, right? So in the ancient world, this is the center. This is the actual, the center of culture and learning in the ancient world. Um, and our world is still influenced today by all the philosophy that comes out of Athens, right? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, almost any philosopher in the last 3,000 years, uh, 2,000 years 
has bounced between these two ideas, right? They're either Platonic or Aristotelian or some combination thereof. So this is our world. Our world is formed and shaped by Athens. And he's speaking to an exclusively Gentile Greek audience uh, who, like Beth pointed out, most people have never, most of these have never read or heard of the scriptures. And so this audience is very much like our 21st century audience. Right? First of all, just like the people around us in our city, they, our, the people in our world know less and less and less about the Bible. Second, they love new ideas. Right? Do you know Luke's um, snide little aside in verse 21? Uh, yeah, this one. Thank you. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And just like us, they're obsessed with new ideas, right, aren't we? We have the internet, we have mobile phones, and we, you can read 10 or 20 new ideas every morning before you leave your bed. You grab your phone and you're looking at Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Instagram and Snapchat and there's a 24-7 news cycle, there's WhatsApp, there's funny cat memes. We have a constant barrage of new ideas coming in at us. And I feel like if we had a constantly connected smartphone, they would have sold like hotcakes in Athens. And just like, Every now and again, when we want to feel intelligent, we listen to a TED talk, right? You listen to an expert speak for five or ten minutes about whatever they're an expert in. Paul gets invited to the ancient version of the TED talk in the Areopagus, right? Clearly, he's an expert on this subject matter. We don't know exactly everything about the resurrection, but you sound like an expert. Come and speak to us. And so, ideas, right? There's a post-Christian world, that, or a non-Christian world, who loves ideas, but thirdly, just like us, despite all of their learning and technology and philosophy and science, Athenian culture is oddly superstitious. Right? Notice this, verse 16. Uh, there we are. Oh, verse 16. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. There's even an idol to an unknown god. Right? So there's this fascination with spirituality, which is not really unlike our own. Do you know anybody who's, who pays attention to their star signs? You ever know, know somebody who will blame the fact that their lack of attention on being a Pisces and who will flick through the horoscopes in the newspapers? Have you ever wondered why, like, even though like, our, our newspapers are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, you know, once upon a time, your, your Saturday newspaper used to be this fat, and now it's like this, it's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. They still got the horoscopes. That means somebody reads them, right? And so you, you have friends who do uh, Reiki, or they talk about their positive spiritual energy and uh, chakras and the like. One of my co-workers, who is one of the best developers I know, so professionally, he's a very logical thinker. He's a very good one. He, he's got a plan to build an app for your phone to do tarot readings. Because that's the world we live in, right? This is our world. Our world is obsessed with spirituality. And so what we're reading here in, in Acts chapter 17, this is ancient Athens, but it's modern Marsfield. And if we want to share the gospel with the world around us, we need to pay attention to what Paul says and how he says it. And so with the longest introduction uh, in the world, let me pray and then let's get into the, let's get into the world word. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this sermon in Acts chapter 17. And Father, would you help us to pay attention to it because we, we love your word and we've received your word and it has saved us and changed our lives. And we want to pray that it does the same to our neighbours, our friends, our family, our co-workers who don't yet know you. 
Father, there is a world out there that, just like ancient Athens, needs to hear the good news of the gospel. And we pray that we'd be attentive to how Paul speaks uh, to the Athenians, how he would speak to modern Australia. And Father, we pray that you'd help us um, to be inspired, motivated, that we'd be learned, we'd be humbled by your word, that you would teach us and show us, but also convict us and change us to be more and more like Jesus and a little bit more like Paul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 17, Paul gets up to talk. And I want you to notice the shape of Paul's argument. He does three things. He does three things. He resonates with his audience, point one. Point two, he dissonates with his audience. And the third thing is he shares the gospel. Resonance, dissonance, gospel. When I was at Bible college, I had the privilege of being taught by one of uh, Australia's finest evangelists. You may know or have heard of him. His name is Sam Chan, or the Reverend Dr. Dr. Samuel Chan. Um, And he taught me something which I haven't forgotten, and so I tell everyone else as the 100% fail-safe method for an evangelistic talk. If you you ever get called up to do a talk, uh, everyone gets sick, and you're the last person standing, and you have, have to preach... Uh, or maybe uh, it's a special event, it's Christmas time, or it's Flourish, or a youth group talk, or even just a kid's talk, or you're just talking to somebody about the gospel, you can use this outline, resonance, dissonance, gospel. And I realised that Sam actually stole this from the Apostle Paul, or borrowed it, or was inspired by it, or, or imitates Paul. But here it is, fail safe, three points, resonance, right? So say something that your audience resonates with, so they can get on board with. Second, dissonance, all right? So... You get them, you're going, yeah, yeah, I get, I, I get that, and dissonance. Then you want to say something that makes them go, huh. You want to point out something they hadn't thought about. You want to reveal a flaw in their worldview, something that makes them think about the world in a different way. And then we don't want to stop there. We want to get to the gospel. We want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about the resurrection. So give that a go next time you give a talk. Use it the next time you're chatting to somebody about the gospel. Let's have a look at how Paul does this, because it's really interesting, I think. So the first thing Paul does is resonate with his audience. And how does he do that? Well, he sees their idolatry all over the city, and what he does is he finds a point of connection. Now, Paul's an orthodox Christian, right? He's read read Isaiah. He knows that those idols are worthless. Uh, Not only are they worthless, he knows his first and second father. He knows that they are tragically sinful. He knows the prophets and how much they hate the idolatry of Israel. He knows that their statues, their idols, their temples, their altars, they're all antithetical to God. So he never says idolatry is okay, but what he does do is he finds the point, he finds what's at the heart of idolatry. Why are these people worshipping idols? Well, humans worship idols because humans really need something to worship, right? Because humans are inherently religious. Humans need something to worship even if it is an unknown God. People of Athens, he says in verse 22, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, as I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what's really striking, I think, is what he doesn't say. Even though the idolatry he sees at Athens is enough to make him distressed, Paul doesn't yell at them. He doesn't tell them, you're wrong. He doesn't say, this is a very bad idea. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't tell them that they're sinners and they need to repent, at least not straight away. He doesn't start by telling them that they're wrong. 
Instead, what he does is he shows kindness and grace and humility. He shows some compassion for them. He demonstrates that he understands where they're at. And you think this would be obvious. You think that'd be obvious, right? If you want to convince somebody of something, you don't start by telling them that they're wrong. But unfortunately, evangelical Christians are not always great at kindness and understanding and empathy. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of examples, um, but this is the one that came most vividly to mind last week when I was looking at the sermon, which is this. It's a classical picture of evangelicals pic uh, picketing abortion clinics with big signs. And I know it's a bit of a caricature. Next slide. And I'm not trying to pick on any particular subculture, but I think it captures a certain sort of sentiment of some evangelical Christians. Next slide. Think about the conversation that's happening, all right? So something that I think that most people, most reasonable people would agree with is that a woman should have agency over her own body, right? That's why rape, that's why rape is a really, really bad thing. You take away somebody's autonomy, right? And date rape jobs are just as abhorrent because they take away your own agency. It takes away your choice about what you are doing. And to be pregnant, too, can feel like having agency taken away from you, even though your body is doing something amazing and miraculous. Especially so if this didn't happen by your explicit choice. And so think about a scared, lonely teenager walking into an abortion clinic. More likely than not, there probably is no, no supportive husband or boyfriend or partner. She's there on her own. What is she thinking? What is she feeling? Well, she's freaked out. She is scared to her core that she's already made one mistake that's ruined her life. And now she's seeing all these signs telling her that she's about to make a second big mistake. Right? She's not walking to that abortion clinic going, I'm going to commit murder today. That's not what she's thinking. She is scared and freaked out and worried and sick to death. And so yelling at her loudly from a place of privilege and telling her that she's a sinner and she should keep the baby and throw away her final years at school, that she should throw away the possibility of university, even at least in the short term. That's not a kindness. And I don't think Jesus, who sat with prostitutes and ate with sinners, would do that sort of thing. I don't think that's what he would say. Indeed, it's like that many people going to have abortions already know that they're sinners. Right? Some stats estimate that as many as one woman in every church has had an abortion. There are other stats in the US that say that more than 40% of people who terminate a pregnancy were churchgoers. This makes sense, right? Because Christian girls, just like Christian boys, they struggle with hormones and self-control. But unlike their non-Christian counterparts, they're not on birth control. They didn't plan to sin. And it seems that they're concerned that they'll find gossip and judgment within the church rather than kindness and genuine help. So instead of telling them, <clears throat> instead of telling them that they're wrong, what we're doing as Christians is coming from a place of kindness and empathy and compassion. And we say, well, I know what it's like to be lonely. I know what it's like to need a friend. I imagine I too would do desperate things in desperate situations. But the best thing, we can, the best thing to do in a desperate situation is to pray and ask God for help. Can we do that together? Can we pray? And then offer to help even if it's hard. Say to the young lady, I know your parents are probably furious at you. Look, if you need a place to stay, if you need a safe place to stay, come stay with us. Go out of your way. Help the person who needs help. 
And if that's you, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular, I'm looking down, if that's you, if you're sitting here contemplating an abortion, please come and talk to me. Talk to Hans, talk to Tim. Or maybe easier and better, talk to one of the ladies. Talk to Sarah, talk to Kate. Talk to the women on the leadership team like Lana or Desiree. And I promise that I, I won't judge you. We're here to help. Right? It takes a village to raise a child, and the church is a pretty good village. Or it should be. And really all of us are sinners, right, who have been in desperate need. We know what it's like. And Jesus went above and beyond for us, and we should go above and beyond for others with kindness and with empathy and compassion. Back to Paul. So we don't start by telling people that they're wrong. Instead, we want to find a point of connection. Empathy. Kindness. What does Paul say? He says, well, you like religion, don't you? You like worshipping. Well, I like worshipping. Let me tell you about who I worship. He resonates with his audience, and he will continue to resonate. He'll continue to find voices that are familiar with it to them. This is one of those moments where I'm having a physical Bible. It's superior to having a um, having an electronic Bible because you get easier access to the footnotes. I love footnotes. Uh, you can tell I've been to Bible college. I like footnotes. Um, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, what you'll see... Next slide, please. All right. These are quotes from their philosophers. He's not quoting from the Bible because they don't heard the Bible. They don't know what it is. He's quoting from a Cretan philosopher called Epimenides. He's quoting from a Sicilian Stoic philosopher named Aratus. To make his point about creation, about us coming, us being, coming from God, he's using their language. He uses their philosophers. He resonates with his audience. He says things they're familiar with. He's kind to them and empathetic to them. He resonates with his audience. Now, once he's resonated with his audience, he then moves on to something new. Right? Because he dissonates. The Athenians have no problems with the idea of gods. God's all over the place. They have, no pro idea with, they have no problem with the idea of gods making the world. But what Paul does now is he adds a subversive idea. He proclaims God, our God, as a God who intentionally makes heaven and earth. The world isn't accident. It's not the byproduct of great gods fighting with other great gods. It's a single intentional decision. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that makes our God superior to all the Greek gods. Right? The Greeks had their temples, their statues, where they have to offer sacrifices to keep their gods happy. You can all, but what does Paul say? Next slide, please. You can almost hear the disdain. Verse 24, he, that's God, he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself is the one who gives all of us life and breath and everything else. God is bigger, he's stronger, he's more powerful than what they can imagine. Right? They pray to one God for the rain, one God for the harvest, one God for wisdom. We pray to one God for everything. Our God creates. Our God gives life. Our God is sovereign over all creation, over geopolitics, Ancient and modern. He's the one who charts the rise and the fall of empires. Our God is the one who appointed their times in history, the boundaries of their lands. He marked out the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of the British Empire, the emergence of the United States as a global superpower, now China and Russia and whatever else might happen afterwards. God is in control. God is still in control. So 
Look at these Greek gods with gold or silver or stone who can't see or speak or move. Compare those gods to the gods, God, the one God who made the world. Who would you rather worship? Paul says to the Athenians. Just as Christians are sometimes tempted towards judgmentalism, sometimes Christians are tempted to not speak up about Jesus. We don't like being disagreeable, so we just don't disagree. We just keep agreeing with non-Christians by not saying anything, even if we don't really agree with them. Right? We're, just, we're just being polite. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't just say, hey, you believe in worshipping, I believe in worshipping, let's be friends, end of story. The Athenians would have loved that. He would have walked away. But instead, he keeps on going. Now, I'd go so far as to say that if your true friendship right, is acknowledging that not only you have similarities, but also differences, acknowledging that not all religions and faiths, they're not all the same, no matter how how much some secularists want to say so in religious studies. So when we're talking to people about Jesus, we need to go beyond the things that resonate with them. We need to add some dissonance. We need to be prepared to offend. And to be clear, we don't want to offend people for the sake of being offensive, right? We don't want to offend people with racism or sexism or discrimination. We don't want to offend them by not taking their beliefs seriously. But we also don't shy away from the fact that Christianity is an offensive religion with offensive things to say. Because right? Christianity says, ultimately, at the end of the day, you can't save yourself. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how noble a life you live, no matter how much money you've given to charity and to help other people, no matter your good reputation in the world, Christianity says, you know what? None of that, none of that saves you. Christianity says, none of that saves you. You need Jesus to be saved. And that's a really, really hard message. That's an almost offensive message to somebody who's a self-made man or woman, right? But it's a true message, and it's a message that we read in the Bible, that we see, and that we need to talk about. So we need to resonate, but we also need to dissonate. We need to find the points of difference and speak up about them. And now we get to the gospel. Here's a good bit. So what can we learn from Paul about how he explains the gospel? Well, speaking of idolatry, verse 30, in the past... Um, I think I have a slide for this. Do I have a slide for this? Yes. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And so we return to where we started, which is thinking about the gospel and the resurrection. These two gods with Paul's. Jesus and the resurrection. And there's a lot to say. Um, Let me quickly say five things. Here we go. The first thing I would say is that Paul mentions it. Like, Like many of you, like I said at the beginning, talking about the resurrection is probably not the first thing I would say in the first sentence or two of explaining the gospel. If the Athenians grabbed me and say, what is this babbler babbling about? And they would say, he's talking about foreign gods. What are the foreign gods? It might be Jesus and the crucifixion, Jesus and the redemption. It might be Jesus and penal substitutionary atonement. You can see I've been to Bible college. Um, but it's remarkable that Paul puts the resurrection front and center. Second thing to say is that this isn't a presentation specific to Athens, right? This is a constant feature of Paul's preaching all the way through Acts. Next slide, please. Earlier in Acts chapter 17, Thessalonica, he's talking in the synagogue. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
Notice he doesn't even mention that Jesus dies. He just says he suffers. He had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Here's an evangelistic sermon in Pisidian Antioch, Acts chapter 13. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Later he's on trial. Uh, chapter 23 and 24, he says the same thing, I'll just say it once. 23 verse 6, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of, my, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Again on trial, chapter 26, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Notice, he once again, he doesn't mention he dies. He just suffers, rises from the dead. And not just Paul either, this is what Peter says too. Uh, next slide. Um, when he speaks to Cornelius, he says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he's not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. I'd go so far as to say that the preaching of Jesus and the resurrection is a feature of the gospel all throughout Acts. So, three, why does Paul keep talking about the resurrection so much? Well, before I think of, come up with crazy theories for you, let's look at what our passage says. Verse 31, did you notice? He has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof of the just judgment of the whole world. Now, proof is a very, very strong word. It's not just evidence. It's not a witness. Paul is saying it's an open and shut case. As surely as Jesus rose from the dead is this fact that he will return to judge the living and the dead. Now, it's worth pointing out there are two resurrections in view here. Um, and they're connected, and there's actually a third, which I'll mention for the sake of completeness. Um, but the two ones that Paul's talking about in all those different verses we ran through super quickly was the resurrection of Jesus happened on the third day after he died, and there's a resurrection of the dead. And there's two in view, right? So the resurrection of Jesus happens uh, three day, on the third day after he died. It's a single point on which all of our faith is based off. In Paul, 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, if Christ is not raised, well, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But if Jesus is raised, then it's our guarantee of new life too. It's a guarantee for the rest of us of the new life that we will have in the future. Elsewhere in the Bible, it uses the idea of first fruits, right? During spring, I'm probably going to get this wrong, I'm not a botanist. During spring, I'm just going to imagine, during spring you see the first yellow lemon, tree, lemon on the tree. What does that tell you? That tells you for the rest of summer, the tree will produce more lemons. And Jesus' physical resurrection is the first fruit. It's that yellow lemon on the tree. It's our guarantee that come summer, we too will be raised to life, to real physical life again. On the last day, everyone will be raised to life to face the final judgment. Jesus' resurrection, our resurrection, the resurrection of the dead.
But there's a third resurrection, which is this. On the day you start to believe in Jesus, in a very real way, you have a spiritual resurrection. You are raised from death to spiritual life. In Ephesians, it already says, you're already seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. And with Jesus is our spiritual resurrection, our life, our peace. So those of us who are raised today have no fear of the future. We have no fear of death. We know that death is not the end. And we will stand at the last day and we will greet Jesus. And we will know that we are forgiven. We know that we will live with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. So here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Here's the, here's the choice that you get to make today. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In the past, God overlooked your ignorance. But the time to repent, the time to turn around and turn to God is now. Jesus did come back. He came, he died for you, and then he came back from the dead. And it's proof that one day we will all meet our maker. And he will ask you for an account. And he will say, he will say you had the chance to turn and trust in Jesus, did you? Did you believe in my son? Did you believe in the one who rose from the dead? Maybe this is the first time, your first time setting foot in a church. Maybe you've been coming to church for years, but deep in your heart you've never really never really committed. Or maybe you've been following Jesus, but there is sin in your life that you need to repent of. Brothers and sisters, repent. Repent today. Turn to Jesus. Be forgiven. Know that in Jesus is hope and peace and comfort. Know the resurrection has come and the resurrection is coming. And know that we have proof of this because Jesus has given us proof by by rising from the dead and we will see Jesus in eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead. Thank you that you've given us new life. We want to pray that our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbours would all come to know the Lord Jesus Christ too. Amen.